My loves, I don't know if you're like me or many of my friends or the, a lot of the people that I know, but listen, do you have a cabinet in your kitchen that's packed with supplements and all these amazing things? They're all there to support your overall health, to boost your gut, to boost your vitality, but you ended up being like too overwhelmed to even like look at it and create a routine with them that you're like just ended up skipping taking your supplements. I've been there too, honey. And this is why I want to take a moment to share an incredible discovery with you, my darling. It's called AG1. And let me tell you, it's been a game changer for me. And how I noticed that it was a big game changer for me was when me and my dad were, do were, we were doing that grief walk from uh, friends through Spain. And I got to tell you, the food was delicious, but it wasn't the best for my gut. But how I kept the gut going, how I kept boosting my vitality throughout the walk was every morning I would put a pack, a packet of the AG1 into a water bottle and I would shake it up and I would drink it. Even my dad, who's always like, here, dad, here, this is good for you. He's like, no, thanks. And granted, you know, the homie's got, you know, he's doing really well um, health-wise. And, but he's always like, nope. But with this, with AG1, he was like, okay, give me some. And he would take it. And it's, there is, it's, it's amazing when you take something, uh, you know, with routine and you start to see the results. It's like, okay, fine. I found my thing. Especially because it's just one serving that has the most straightforward way and simplest way for you to get your vitamins and your nutrients and your minerals and your prebiotics and probiotics. And honestly, why take a bunch of different things when you can just get um, all of it in, in one scoop of this delicious magic AG1 powder? into a glass of water or into the beautiful uh, water bottle that you get. This is how I start my days, honey. And honestly, if you're a traveler, they also uh, will send you, you could also get the AG1 travel packs and they're amazing. And, and every time I have a friend that comes over to the house, I'm always like, here, take a couple of these and try it out for yourself, you know? And I want to share an amazing, exclusive, delicious offer with you today. If you want to take ownership of your health, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com backslash sa. So that's drinkag1number1.com backslash sa. Um, you got that. And if you don't go to the show notes, it's there. And cheers to your health and your vitality. Hey, my love, listen real quick. I hope you're enjoying the podcast as much as we love creating it for you. And if you find value in what we're doing and you want to show some appreciation, we have two simple ways for you to contribute. The first one is by buying us a coffee. It's a one-time donation that goes a long way in helping us cover production costs, equipment upgrades, and other podcast-related expenses. Every cup of coffee makes a significant impact in our ability to keep delivering the quality content that you love. The second option is for you to become a monthly supporter by buying us a coffee on a reoccurring basis. By setting up a monthly donation, you become an integral part of our podcast sustainability. And we get to continue to create the content you love with confidence, knowing that we have a reliable source of funding coming in. 
And we love you for that. Listen, head over to the show notes and click the link there or go to buymeacoffee.com backslash spiritually sassy show. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com backslash spiritually sassy show. And I just want to say thank you so much to all of you who have already been buying us a coffee. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your generosity is so wonderful. And we're incredibly grateful for your support. What's up, my loves, and welcome back to the Spiritually Sassy Show, where we are redefining what it means to be spiritual in the modern world. I'm your host, Sade Simone, and I'm so grateful that you're here. And I'm so grateful that we get to talk to such legendary, wildly powerful, amazing, inspirational people in this show. And today is really an amazing, amazing episode. I was watching something on Netflix and then I saw this dude talking about these amazing things. And I was like, uh, excuse me, we need to have you on. So we jumped through these different hoops and we're able to have him on a show. Will Gidara or Gidara. I don't know. I like Gidaha better. Um, he is the former co-owner of Make It Nice, a hospitality group that included 11 Madison Park, the Nomad Restaurants, Davies and Brooke at the Claridge's Hotel, and Made Nice. He's the author of the national bestseller, Unreasonable Hospitality. When I heard the title of his book, I was like, uh, excuse me, we're going to talk about this, which chronicles chronicles the lessons in service and leadership he has learned over the course of his career in restaurants. Under his leadership, 11 Madison Park received numerous accolades, including four stars from the New York Times, three Michelin stars, and in 2017 was named the number one on the list of worlds of the world's 50 best restaurants. The restaurant has also received seven James Beard Foundation Awards, including Outstanding Service and Outstanding Restaurant in America. You get the picture, honey. Get into this episode and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And let us know in the in the reviews how the episode has moved you and inspired you. Big love to you all. Well, hello, Will. It's such an honor to have you on the show. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly, a, you're an a unusual guest for us, you know, because your outward presentation to the world is not about mental health or spirituality or, you know, personal development and well-being per se, but I, I had this intuitive hit to like invite you on the show and then as I started to, you know, look at your work and get to know what you're doing, I think what you're saying to the world is highly spiritual. It's just packaged in a completely different way than <laughs> the listeners used to, I'm used to. So I applaud your audacity to speak about really uh, deep, meaningful topics in a way that's, that's very relatable to people. So thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. 
Yeah. Okay, so let's jump right into it. What does hospitality mean to you? Because you, you're coming as like, you know, with these huge accolades, like your restaurants have been like number one in the world and all this. It's like insane that you've been able to create this, these places that people want to be in. You know, granted, it's very bourgeois and privileged, but there's something amazing happening in the atmosphere of the space. And I think hospitality and how you train your staff and everything. I'm curious, you know, if you can give us, in, you know, give us a peek into that secret sauce. Well, so I think the best way to explain what hospitality means to me is to juxtapose it against service. Uh, because I think way too often people conflate those two words in, in the context of interacting with, um, with an organization or a product or, or whatever. People oftentimes say that hospitality and service are the same thing. I believe that service, and by the way, there's a distinction, not being of service, I'm just talking about the concept of service, mm -hmm. is part of the product. In my world, service is giving the right thing to the right person within the right amount of time. Hospitality is how you make people feel when you do that thing. Um, back in the day when I was a new manager, I didn't have the confidence to just let a conversation flow when I was interviewing someone to join my team. And so I always went in to the interviews with a list of questions and I wanted to ask every single question. There were right answers and wrong answers. Um, and the best answer I ever got to one of the questions, which was what is the difference between service and hospitality was service is black and white. Hospitality is color. Hospitality is where you breathe life into a transaction. It's when serving someone becomes less transactional. It's, it's when you with creativity and intention create the conditions for connection between you and the person you're serving or such that they have a heightened ability to more genuinely connect with those that they're with. Um, hospitality. You can fake service. You can't fake hospitality. Wow. That's beautiful. And how do you train people in hospitality? Because in my work, I'm like constantly trying to get people to go out and you know, and, and, and help the unhoused community, go be of service in the prisons, go like, go, you know, share your gifts in all these areas where systemic oppression has made it really hard for specific kinds of people to never break free from the systems, you know? And I, I've had the, the opportunity of working in, you know, really high, like spaces, celebrities on TV, and then, you know, orphan centers in Nepal and in India. And so in my world, in my view, it's like, how do you get people to be, stop being apathetic and like go out to be of service? I have my own approach to that. But I'm curious in your world, how do you train people with hospitality? Because I love the difference of it. Like service is black and white, transactional. Hospitality is about connecting to someone's humanity, right? There's like, it's nuanced, it's, it's deep. It, there's a dance that takes place. So when I was coming up in my career, some of the people that I admired the most would always say that you hire for hospitality and you train excellence. Meaning that there are people that are hospitable, there are people that aren't, hire the ones that are, and then train them how to be good at the job in the technical way. Um, but I don't, I don't believe that to be true. And perhaps the word train is not the right word to use. 
but I most certainly believe you can encourage hospitality in people. I believe everyone has hospitality in them. Everyone has kindness in them, but it needs to be drawn out because I don't, I don't know that any of us have a desire or the capacity to be hospitable until we first know how good it feels to receive hospitality or perhaps even more effective is to show someone how good it feels to give hospitality because I don't think there is anything more energizing than seeing the look on someone else's face than when they receive a gift you are responsible for giving them. I think it can become so quickly the most beautiful addiction. And so how do I train people to be hospitable? Well, I focus first on being hospitable towards them and then try to loop them into a moment where they are extending hospitality to someone else. And you can see it. You can see that light bulb moment happen where suddenly they go from not necessarily really caring about it or perhaps better said, not prioritizing it. You can see the look on their face when suddenly they're hooked and then it becomes self-perpetuating. Wow. And there's something about the scientific research that shows about the helper's high, Hmm. that it's like the greatest, um, you know, free of intoxicants high that we can, you know, self-produce, neurochemically be high in our own supply by caring for other people, helping other people. So I think you're speaking to that too. It's very beautiful. Amazing. Let's talk about your new book. I think it's like the title is like the main reason why I was like, who says this? Like, are you a spiritual (laughs) teacher? Like what is even happening? Are you actually like doing the thing that people must be doing, but we're not doing it packaging this like New York city restaurateur, you know, prize winner, unreasonable hospitality. Like how, why, what propelled you to write the book? Cause it goes outside of your scope now. Now it's for everybody. It's not people who only get to know you, come to your restaurants, are in your sphere, watch your TED talk and things like that. But it's now it's you, it's you're in every bookstore. It opens the door to a lot of other people. And the, the title is so like, oh, I want to be unreasonably hospitable. Like what? <laughs> That's a desirable aspiration for me. That's a value that I can get behind, you know? By the way, it's so funny. I remember when I first told the publishers what I wanted the title to be, they just hated it. They hated the word unreasonable at the front of it. And and that was kind of a part of what I was trying to articulate was there's the stigma around being unreasonable, but when you point it towards something beautiful, it becomes transformational. Um, I wrote the book. I've been wanting to write a book for a long time, but running restaurants here, not left with like tons of free time to sit down and write. Um, I sold my company at the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020. So before COVID, um, not due to some prescient knowledge of the world's pending collapse. It just timed out that way. And then immediately following the sale of my company, I started to have just a profound identity crisis. Like what is a restaurateur without restaurants? And so 
quickly, aggressively, perhaps even frantically, I started rebuilding a team and raising a bunch of money. And when COVID started, I was one week away from signing three restaurant leases in New York City. And my wife and I left New York City. We came up to our place in the country for what we thought was going to be a couple weeks. And I worked to keep all those deals alive. And, and then one day, a few months in, I had this moment where I was like, what am I doing? I think that most of us suffered some amount of financial or emotional pain during COVID. But most of us can also point to something about COVID that we're thankful for. Um, a very good friend of mine who's a pastor in the Pacific Northwest in one of those early Zooms that we were all dialing into with friends and family just because we were missing the beautiful feeling of human connection and there was no real agenda to those Zooms. We were just sharing. He shared a prayer that a woman who walked into his church said, which was, I pray the things we're being forced to do today are things we choose to do tomorrow. Um, this idea that COVID forced us to do certain things that we all really should choose to do more frequently, which whether that's family dinner or reflection. Or... But the gift that COVID gave me was the, the space and the grace to decide what I wanted to do next in my life as opposed to running back and doing the same thing I'd always done. COVID put the world on vacation put vacation in air quotes for long enough that I realized that no, my identity wasn't in what I did. My identity was completely separate than that. And I decided not to proceed with those three leases and not to rush back into opening more restaurants, but just to give myself space. Um, that said, I've always believed that one of the best ways to move forward is to first look back. And so I wrote the book for three reasons. One, because I had always wanted to write a book. I believe that there's so many lessons from my industry that could be so applicable to the world beyond my industry. I believe that every business can make the choice to be in the hospitality industry simply by being as unreasonable about how they make people feel as they already are about the product they serve. But selfishly, I wrote the book to walk down the road of life that I just lived in advance of deciding the road that I wanted to walk down next. And because I believe the best way to learn is to teach and forcing myself to put language to all these ideas that I believe and have understood for so long so intuitively would help me be better at them going forward. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you something personal? Yeah. Do you feel like your upbringing played a role in you being a caring human being? Because, like, I have to give a lot of credit to the smothering helicopter mother that I had. You know, she just passed away um, not too long ago, and I celebrated her birthday actually a couple of days ago, and I put a picture of her on the table. I, I bought a piece of uh, red velvet cake hmm. that she liked. I put some candles on it. And I, I did a prayer. I sang happy birthday in Portuguese, which is our native language in English. And then I sang her favorite song, uh, Pink's uh, Cover Me in Sunshine. And then I cried, I cried, I cried. But the reason why I'm saying all this is because my mom taught me 
true, unconditional love. She just was there. She just was there. Although there was like a, a period in my upbringing that um, there was a, a conflict and, and, and lack of language to how to care for a queer child in a sort of a, you know, um, heteronormative, m- must be heteronormative world like Brazil and then Florida, uh, where we moved from Brazil to Florida. And so there's like questioning and things, but there was never like, um, there was never like harm in a way of what I hear from some of my students and, you know, the places that I, that I get to teach at. It's like some, so I, I attribute a lot of the way that I can care for other people. Yes, through my own path and my own, you know, teachers in the Buddhist path that I've been so lucky to have, but I attribute a lot of it to how my mom cared for me. And most recently I went on this 500 mile walk from France through Spain with my dad to, to be with the grief. Cause we both had arrived at like sort of a numb state. And I remember waking up some of these days and like, just over it. I'm like, why the fuck are we here on this walk? I'm over it. Like, let's just go somewhere else that we can like eat, the way that we want. We don't have to walk seven hours a day. We can, you know, like just I'm <laughs> over this walk. So I was, there are days that I was like, would w- wake up very glitchy and annoyed and, and just like, so fucking over the whole thing. And I noticed my dad just resting and, and this loving awareness. And I, you know, I'm like, when we're triggered, we want a reaction and he wouldn't react. He would just be like relaxed and kind. And, I, and it, it almost annoyed me more until I got the revelation that like, wow, here is this man also, um, you know, walking the path of unconditional love, of like not restricting his love only to when I'm kind, only to when I'm sweet, only to when I'm funny. But his uncontrived love was a big lesson that I learned in this 500 miles that we just walked together. So all this to say, it's like you you wrote this book, you you have ta- you're teaching people all over the world about unreasonable hospitality. Do you think some of that has to do with how you're raised? I mean, certainly. <clears throat> and first of all, I'm really sorry for your loss. And I'm glad that you okay. took the time to do what you did. Thank you. Um, yeah, without question. When I was four, my mom was diagnosed with brain cancer. And they removed the tumor, but the radiation treatment that they used in order to kill what remained of the tumor ultimately rendered her into a quadriplegic by the time I was like eight or nine or 10. Um, And she passed away right after I graduated college. And so, well, A, my dad was a restaurateur. I was in awe of my dad. No matter what he did for a living, that's probably what I would have wanted to do for a living because of the extent to which I held him up on a pedestal. And he, and he deserved it. I mean, he worked long hours. He was an incredible professional and yet still was an incredible dad to me and always made the time to do that and was an incredible caretaker to my mother. And so I saw watching him never once feel bad for himself that at a very young age, he had a quadriplegic wife that he now had to take care of for the rest of his life. He never felt bad for himself. And in fact, I could see him find joy in caring for someone that he loved. And at the same time, I had to care for her too. He was at work 12, 14 hours a day. And so we were a team. 
most nights until she became so sick, we had to bring in nurses. I would feed my mom dinner. I would feed her breakfast, right? And we would shower her. I would put her to bed. Um, and I think in an early age, I also never felt bad for myself because I didn't know a different normal. And my dad gave me an example to follow. At an early age, I came to understand how good it feels to care for other people. And so whether it was wanting to follow in my dad's footsteps or whether it was feeling firsthand the fact that there are a few things more satisfying than breathing joy into someone else's life. I mean, I've never wanted to do anything else with my life outside of being in the restaurant business. Because that, for me, was the most obvious way to do the things that I love to do. Wow. What, um, oof, I'm over here holding back tears to not make this about me, you know? And also, like, full body chills is your telling the story, too. Wow. What a profound upbringing, you know? And how, how much that touched you and how, like, how you interpret it, you know, because I think it's all perception, right? You could have like played the victim and said, oh, my mom was sick, so I didn't have a life. Mm. My mom was in a terrible place, so I didn't have an opportunity to experience this and that. And and I think for our family too, it was very similar. Like my mom's uh, cancer really became um, a call to come together as a family, a call to you know, to call each other more, to know about each other's inner worlds, to know about each other's uh, dreams and sorrows and to show up more in each other's lives in really deep and profound ways and to, and to just create joy on a daily basis. You know, like my, my sort of, um, you know, what, what we have now, the somatic activated healing method, which is something that was discovered by Deepak Chopra's team, started with me and my mom dancing in our kitchen. You know, the power mm. of dance when she is just off of, of radiation and chemotherapy and she has she has no energy. And, and, and but the joy that we are that I'm bringing to her, we're now capturing that on the on the screen and then we're putting it out to the world. It started to create its own little movement. Um, so, wow. That's wow, really wow, cool. Wow. That's really cool. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's hospitality, by the way. That's right. <laughs> Here's That's the right. thing, like, and I'm, I'm thinking about this only right now in real time, but I don't believe that you extend hospitality to your family. Tell me if, tell me if you disagree with what I'm about to say. I'm thinking it and saying it out loud right now for the first Please, time. Please, let's go. I think that with your family, you weren't being hospitable with your mother. You were just loving your mom. Hospitality is when you take the essence of the love you express to the people closest to you and extend that to strangers. I think there's something there because you explained that to me and I said, that's hospitality. No, but that would be hospitality if you were doing it with a stranger. In that moment, you were just loving your mother. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't believe we can love strangers 
in the same way that we love the people we know, but we can still extend to them the essence of that love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in Buddhism, the, the description of love is to wish somebody to be happy. So the, the wings of the, of the service-oriented life is compassion is the wish to alleviate their suffering and to love is the wish to see them happy. So you kind of have to do the, you know, it's usually like the compassion first and then the love because, you know, someone is hurt. You're not going to be like, you know, thinking of ways to support their happiness. You're going to give them a fucking Band-Aid or you're going to give them <laughs> some water or you're going to pick them up off the floor. You're not going to be like, hey, how about we we start a meditation practice? How about you quit this job? How about you get a divorce? You know, not the things that will support their happiness, but how do we like alleviate the suffering right here, right now first before going to the next stage? And I, I and and hearing what you're saying, I, I think it's like we... We do the self-practice, right? It's between us, between our family, our, our, our community, a close community of friends, maybe the top five and maybe the top 10. Um, and then once we have that, then we can kind of like bring, bring that into the world. But bring also that. like the love I feel for my wife is more than just wanting her to be happy. Do you know what I mean? Like... So what is the word in, in Buddhism for that that you feel for your mother, right? It's got to be more than just wanting the other person to be happy. I know. It's just Buddhism can sometimes be, and this is my, my own way of digesting the material, right? Sometimes it, the Western um, approach to love, there's a lot of obsession, possession, attachment, which are qualities of mind uh, unpleasant states of mind that don't lead to happiness or liberation or enlightenment. So I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely do feel this, you know, I even feeling this with my ex-boyfriend that we're still talking. I feel like, but I'm like, am I just like obsessing over the script that I have for us and how it should have been? Am hmm. I just wanting him to be mine and, you know, so it's, it's, it's what I'm, it's an, it, I'm still navigating that. And I always just go back to that principle of like, how could I help to alleviate, you know, their suffering, the people who I care about, people who I work with and then extend love to them. But I think there is, you know, we can kind of use the language of like karmic bond or, or soul, um, you know, connection, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think that's sometimes the scriptures could be a little cold you know, and, but I'm trying to humanize and I'm trying to just kind of like allow more of a question to be like, I don't really know the love that we feel for other people. And ideally look here, here's what the scripture says too, which is also something important to name. They do want us to care for others, the way we care for ourselves, the way we care for our mother in, in the, in the, in the lineage that I practice, which is a hybrid of Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism. There's a concept about Bodhisattva, and these are beings who take this vow to become liberated for the sake of other people. Their entire life's mission is about caring for others. And they say that Bodhisattva, you know, the same way that at night when we're cold and the blanket's off, it may be falling off to the side of the bed. We're not like, oh my God, I'm cold. Oh, what should I do? Oh, I should reach out to the blanket. It's this automatic behavior that we just like automatically sort of unconsciously just reach and pull back the blanket and make ourselves warm. They are urging us 
the Bodhisattva vows, the Bodhisattva scriptures, those canonical texts are really pushing us to be able to have this uncontrived, it's called uncontrived bodhicitta, which is uncontrived compassion and care for other people the same ways that we care for ourselves. The pain of others is part of our pain. But we, we, we're working towards it. And I think what you're doing is, is that with your work and what your words are saying, it, it's, it, can we get a little closer to that? You know, I think every day, that's what I hope. My loves, I don't want to take too much time away from the episode. So just a quick break to give you some delicious information and something that's really exciting me. Listen, we have launched the Somatic Activated Healing Membership and the benefits that the members are sharing with us is so delicious. They're saying it's reduced depression and anxiety, reduced physical pain and sluggishness. I can't even say that word. Increased a sense of resilience, increased joy and inspiration hey we love that improved physical health and energy levels improved mental health and clarity and it's deepened their connection to authenticity and self-expression so all this a dream come true because i've always wanted to be able to have a sacred school meet temple meets dance floor so all of this coming together that's what the somatic activated healing membership is all about it's helping us Take responsibility for what we're carrying and time to say goodbye to the emotional baggage and time to say hello, open heart. Because, you know, the body keeps the score, as we've heard this. The body holds the imprints of our past experiences. And unless you have the tools and the time to process your painful experiences as they happen, it leaves an emotional residue alive in your body, which then turns your body into inflammation, then turns your mind into chaos, therefore closes your heart. Listen, and I've gone through this experience of carrying emotional baggage, a massive heavy load for so much of my life that it was like making my body, I mean, the symptoms were wild, chest pains, cystic acne, gut issues, depression, anxiety, addiction, suicidal ideation, you name it. All of these things were symptoms of unprocessed emotional baggage. So in the Somatic Activated Healing Membership, you have access to a multitude of practices, including the ultimate mind body spiritual workout which is what you're seeing me in the doing that that looks like a, a a sort of a regular dance practice but there's an entire mathematical process happening behind which i can't wait for you to experience it for yourself in the membership you also have access to um, guided meditations master classes spiritual talks courses and live dharma workshops with me once a month Maybe I forgot to say this, but there is somatic activated healing method practices every single day live with teachers from all over the world, honey. And these are epic teachers who I have certified myself, so I fully trust them to deliver this message, to deliver this method. What we also have in the membership is a community page where you get to engage with other members. And we also have weekly inspirational prompts to get you going. So with the whole thing, this entire, you know, uh, uh, dance floor meets temple meets sacred school, the combination of all this together will give you the support to have a robust and foundational spiritual practice that, will, that could literally radically change your life. And you've heard the members, what they're saying, that it's working. So take it from what they're saying, honey. In any case, I love you very much. I hope you keep enjoying the podcast and... We're giving you a seven-day free 
trial to the membership. So get in there. The link is in the show notes. And um, I hope I get to see you on the dance floor. Big love to you. Peace. Can we get a little closer to that? You know, I think every day that's what I hope. And I took over the conversation entirely here. <laughs> no, 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 no. We've both taken a segue or yeah, a long segue and I love it. I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do um, through the book and through sharing my stories and the lessons I've learned along the way is to show how selflessness can also be selfish, how being kind and being hospitable is in many cases as good, if not better for you than the person you're extending it towards. I believe that when you approach, let's just talk about business because in many ways, this is a business book, although business is all about relationships and so is life. And I think most, in most cases, the lessons from one are applicable to the other. But from a business perspective, I believe that unreasonable hospitality is an approach to take because it's a win-win-win. It's better for the people you're serving. You give people the kind of memories that will last a lifetime and a connection to your brand that is impossible to establish in the absence of unreasonable hospitality. It's good for the bottom line because although it requires resources, time, energy, some money to to create this kind of culture within a workplace, every dollar you spend on it has a return much greater than any dollar anyone could ever spend through traditional marketing. But it's also great for everyone in the workplace because A, the moment you give your team the permission and the resources to come up with creative ideas to make the people they're serving happy you turn the people that work for you from salespeople into product designers. You're, you're empowering them and giving them agency to imbue the experience with their own generous creativity. And I have yet to meet someone who won't give more of themselves to help something succeed than when they have a hand in determining what that thing is. As well as the fact that you're giving everyone in your team the gift, the permission, and the resources to make other people happy, which on its own makes the work so much more fulfilling. I think we're in this season right now where so many businesses are having a hard time retaining and recruiting new staff and everyone's paying people more and giving them more time off, both of which are important, but it's basically like treating the symptoms instead of the underlying condition. Um, I think the best way to encourage people to want to work wherever you work is to make the work more fulfilling. And the best way to do that is through being as unreasonable about hospitality as you are about anything else. Um, that's all to say that, I, I, I mean, I do think there's a ton of similarities, right? And, and I actually think we're having the same conversation in spite of the segue. I love it. <laughs> Listen, talk to me about the, one of the chapters in the book, Lessons in Enlightened Hospitality. What are some of the greatest lessons in that chapter? So enlightened hospitality is the phrase that was coined by my longtime boss and mentor, Danny Meyer. That's how he articulated his approach to running his company. And the big 
revelation. Um, groundbreaking revelation was that he did not put the customers first. He put the people in his team first, knowing full well that hospitality is a team sport. And if he served the people that were serving the customers, the customers would be implicitly served. Um, Danny Meyer taught me so many things, but perhaps chief on the list of things he taught me was the importance of language to help define ideas. Um, there were all these isms when I worked for Danny and they filled that chapter. Um, so many isms, in fact, that other people who worked for other companies called our company a cult um, because we had this shared language and this devotion to the, the work and the people we worked for. But I've come to recognize that, well, cult is short for culture. And a cult is often what people who work for companies that have not invested in building a culture call those that have. Um, but I mean, there's so many things that Danny taught me and that I learned while working within the system of enlightened hospitality. The one that I end up returning to most often is the charitable assumption. Mm. Um, he would talk about the importance of making the charitable assumption always in spite of the fact that it goes against your human nature. And I'll talk about it in service. It's more fun to serve nice people, right? Those are the people where <laughs> you are giving good energy and they're giving good energy back. And a part of the human condition, whether you are working in service or just walking through life, is when someone is mean to you, you give them less of yourself. You retreat. They no longer deserve your hospitality because they're a dick. The charitable assumption means effectively give them the benefit of the doubt. Because maybe that person is acting like a dick because they just found out their wife was cheating on them on the way to the restaurant. Maybe the person that in the moment you determine deserves your love least of all actually needs it most of all. That's perhaps my favorite lesson that I learned from Danny Meyer. Do you think you're the staff? I mean, clearly, right? Because like when you have these like big, super kind of like bourgeois, annoying writers for these big media companies, they're looking at every detail and they're the ones who are kind of cunty too, right? To kind of like see if the staff like lives up to the bosses, what the boss says in the big interviews and the things, you know? Um, but how do you think like you were a, people were able to, to, like walk that that walk of like give even when the customer is being a fucking cunt. Like how do we do that? Because that's like, see, this is what I'm saying, Will. Everything you're talking about, it's like literally like this is like Buddhism 101. <laughs> this is like the basics of everything that I teach. You just have your own language for it, which I find fascinating. And I hope the listener is like, 
If they're tired of me talking about this shit, they hear from you, mega boss, in a completely different space. Like, okay, and I hope it's <laughs> landing because it's it, this is it. It's all relationship. We are a social body. We are a relationship. And when you give, you receive. And sometimes when you give to those who only take and don't have any any feedback to your offering, um, there is something happening. You know, there is something happening in, on a, on, you know, in Buddhism, we say in a karmic level that oftentimes doesn't meet the eyes and the face can be processed by the senses, but it's, it's happening. There's a momentum. There's a consequence to every action. Good, you know, benevolent actions have good and benevolent consequences. And the same goes for the, on the other side of that. So I, I wonder like, how did you get your staff in a room and say, Hey, when Kevin and Sally and Karen are being a Karen, you still care for them. Like they are, you know, the black Madonna sitting there who's going to bless us all. Like what, how? Well, Do I okay, make well, sense? Am I, am no, I you're, sense? You're, making, you're making complete sense. Yeah, and I want to okay, caveat good. it by saying like, listen, there's also no place for abuse in any workplace. And as much as I would say that to my team, the moment it like crossed the line and someone was being abusive to someone that worked for me, then they just need to go. But there's a lot of space in between those two extremes. Um, listen, I believe that a lot of the things, my, my dad who's taught me so much once said that whenever you're faced with a difficult decision, ask yourself what right looks like and just do that. And it honestly makes life a lot easier to not have to overthink things because while so much of life lives in the gray, normally when you're looking at what's right and what's wrong, it's, it's pretty black and white. That said, it's not always easy to do what's right. And so we're talking about the charitable assumption. That is clearly what's right. If you're listening to this and you heard the way I just articulated it and you disagree with me, well, I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> that said, I as an individual nor anyone on my team as an individual has the capacity to always do what's right. It's not, we can't be judged by only our actions. We also need to be judged by our intentions. Now, that said, when you build a really good team and you invest the time and energy to find ways, moments of gathering, such that they cease being a collection of individuals and come together as a trusting team, then they're there to support one another. Because invariably, when someone is having a hard time either just getting through service because they're overwhelmed or having a hard time emotionally with a challenging table, there's an entire army of people there to pick them up and support them. I think it's much, much, much easier to do what's right when you're a part of a team or a community or a trusting circle of friends than it is to do when you're alone in the wilderness, right? And that's why I think like surrounding ourselves with people that we love and trust is so important. And it's why one of the greatest things a leader can do is not just lay out their non-negotiables and their core values and 
talk about them with passion and enthusiasm such that they can inspire other people to believe those things as well, but also to give everyone that works for them a lot of other amazing people to work alongside so that even in the most challenging moments, you have other people to lift you up. I'm telling you, you're like a closeted Buddhist. I'm telling you, <laughs> and I hope that's not an offense to you at all. It's, it's a, it's a compliment in my world. Okay. You know, uh, in Buddhism, we have, you know, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And when you become officially like a, a Buddhist, you take refuge in these three jewels. And one of the Buddhists, uh, historical Buddhists, um, main disciple, Ananda, renowned disciple, you know, not the main, he just a very developed being, asked the Buddha, and I'm paraphrasing this whole story. He says, uh, Buddha, so how important is the community on the spiritual journey? You know, because we have, we have, you know, the teacher, we have the teachings, and and talk to me about the friends on the path, the community of, you know, of, of practitioners together who are all with that same intention. The Buddha said, you know, Ananda, the, out of the three jewels, the community is the most important jewel. Like hmm. you, the people who you walk life with, the people who are surrounding you with, those are, the, this is, this is the spiritual path. He says, that's the entirety of the path. And I love what you're saying. Cause it's so true. It's like, if I didn't have the friends and community that I have, I wouldn't be able to go through the last six months that I've been December 25th. I'm in a silent retreat in Nepal. And, and you now a, a week later, I start, you know, having these feelings that my mom was, was going to die. Anyways, I'm on the other side of the world. I'm on a now a 22-hour flight to, to come to Brazil to, to be with my mom for the last two hours of her life. Fast forward two months later, she dies. Two months later, my root guru dies. Two months later, my boyfriend and I break up. Oh, two weeks later, I, we move out of our shared home that we have built together. So it's just been like a shit show of a year, you know? And I'm like, holy shit, like what the fuck is even happening? It's just one thing after the next. The only thing that's getting me through is service, caring for other people. And the way that I'm energized enough to care for others is by having friends who are checking in on me, who are all walking the same path, who are all sharing the same intention, you know? So I love what you're saying. It's literally like, <laughs> it's so beautiful, the, the synchronicity of your message. That's cool. I mean, I think the thing is that you find these messages across various places, right? Like, I'm not a religious person in any way, shape, or form, but, like, I see it in friends of mine who are devout Christians. Like, they're, they're craving of brotherhood and sisterhood and in, in their communities. Apparently, it exists in Buddhism. And you see it, like, I mean... I see it in my Jewish friends, like the way, the way my Jewish friends actually take the time to turn off their phones and lean inwards with their community is actually quite staggeringly inspiring. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe if it's that prevalent in so many passion filled circles, that's enough of a meta message to the world that it matters. That's what I'm saying. It's just, we are in such a loneliness epidemic. You know, stats show that one out of every four people have no one to talk to and 60% of Americans die alone. And it, people are, are so, it's hard to connect. 
It's hard to be of service. It's hard to reach out. It's hard to navigate the the waters of feeling awkward to say, hey, I, I want to be your friend, you know, or how, you know, or showing friendship by, by hospitality, you know, by caring for people in an unreasonable way. I'm going to take these words and I'm going to run with it now. Unreasonable love, unreasonable care. I love it so much. You know, I, I mean, think the, the, it, it takes a lot. I, it's really hard. Yeah. Well, I want to, let me, let me push back on that with a slight tweak because I think that word is a tricky one. I don't believe it's hard. I believe it requires trying harder. And I think the distinction between those two things is very important because if we say something is hard, then it gives us all the excuse not to do it. Well, it's hard. I'm not great at it. But if you take it that away and you say, no, 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 it's not hard. You just need to try harder. Um, Beautiful. That was like a perfect, I don't even take that as a pushback. I take that as an upgrade. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. Yes. Beautiful. Very true. Very true. So, you know, for everyone listening, I, I really do hope that you will try harder to, you know, like make a friend and connect in deeper ways and be unreasonably caring as you're walking the, these waters of connection and friendship, because as, as Will is saying, and as these, you know, these um, ancient scriptures are saying, community is everything. And that's, I, this is like, there's also a little something else as that Thich Naha says that the next Buddha uh, named Maitreya won't come in an emanation body as a physical form. It will be born out of the hearts of a community of an enlightened community. And Maitreya is going to be the social body of, of, um, of a community that has like found forgiveness and grace and care in their hearts. So I love that too, as something to kind of like reflect on and think about and kind of lead with, you know, it's like the more and more we are unreasonably hospitable to each other, the more we can create this enlightened society, you know? And now here we go, the Bible of will, where the gospel of will is coming. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love it. I love it. Listen, talk to me about the power of intention. It's one of the, it's the, the heading of another chapter in the book. My dad drilled into me over the course of my life, the importance of being intentional. Um, and I think if I'm, going to summarize the entire book into an idea. It's about being creative and intentional in pursuit of relationships. But I think intention comes in so many different forms. The less that we do randomly, the less that we do on accident and the more that we do with intention, the better off we will be. The more successful you'll be, the happier you'll be, the more precise you'll be, the more fully seen others will be. Um, I think if we're not careful, you can find yourself just like hurling yourself down the hallway of life as opposed to slowing down in order to speed up. Slowing down and deciding what are the next three things you want to do and then what do you want to do after that? I live without intention on the mornings that I wake up and scroll through Instagram for an hour. I live with intention 
when I wake up and go ride the Peloton or take my daughter on a walk. Um, every time that I choose how I want to live with intention, I'm more satisfied with how I lived. Um, when it comes to pursuing relationships, it's, I mean, I could just say, hey, how's it going to you? Or I could decide how in a relationship with you, what can I do such that you will feel the most cared for and seen by me? Um, a friend of mine lost his dad uh, about a year ago. And I just tried to think, okay, how can I pursue him with intention? Right? Not pursuing him in the absence of intention would be calling him, checking in every once in a while when you think of him reaching out. <laughs> Instead, I sent him a text message and I said, hey, I'm going to call you every single day at 9.30 a.m. for the next several months. You don't have to answer when I call. But just so you know, that call is going to come. And if you need someone to talk to at 9.30 a.m., you're going to get a call from me. And then I put that in my calendar. 9.30 a.m. every single day with no end date. Call my friend. That was pursuing him with intention. And half of the time he answered, half the time he didn't. When he did, half the time we'd be on the phone for five minutes, half the time we'd be laughing hysterically at the end of an hour call. Um, one may agree or disagree with that form of love in that moment in his life, but I pursued him with intention. Now, we only have so many hours of a day, right? You can't play, you can't do that for everyone always, but that's where intention comes back in. It's deciding who you choose to pursue when, how, but also, by the way, when to pursue yourself, how to pursue them, how to pursue you, what you want to get out of the day. And by the way, intention doesn't mean being healthy. Sometimes intention can mean like, you know what? For the next month, I'm going to eat whatever I want because that's what's going to bring me joy right now. And then for the month after that, I'm going to get it together. Um, the more you pursue people in life with intention, the less likely you are to look back with regret. Wow, this is so deep. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm over here like, holy shit. <laughs> wow, thank you so much. I'm like, holy shit. I can't wait for everyone to listen to this episode. Wow. And for people who are actively listening right now, wow. Make that note, make that call, try harder. Like the audacity to call someone every day, you know? And I had friends who messaged me as soon as my mom died and they said, I'm going to message you every day. You don't have to respond. 
And I, I, there was something there around just feeling like held, although they couldn't, you know, be there in whatever way. And then people just flew in from different parts of the country uh, to just be there. Like things like that during a really hard time, it, it really goes a long way. You, you really never forget, you know, and the, the bond deepens in such a, such a massive way. And then you arrive in your early 40s with friends, you know, very, very new and very, very cool. Or you are in your 60s or 70s and or you get sick and you have somebody to take you to chemotherapy. You have somebody to drive you when you get, you have the, you know, you are depressed. Someone comes and cleans your house. You are sick. Yeah. Someone brings you chicken soup. Like community is everything, you know, and, and, and tending to those friends that you want to have more of in your life. It's like tending to a garden, you know, don't think about your houseplants who die every minute and you just go to Trader Joe's and you get a new one. Those don't count. I'm talking about like actually a garden where you're trying to grow fruits and vegetables and that takes time and takes seasons and takes all kinds of different ways to fertilize the soil and see it bloom. Like one thing that I've done in my life is in the favorites, I have an iPhone in the favorites on the phone. I've, I've, I've sort of ordered, put it in a, in a order of hierarchy. And I know this word is charged, but for my, in, in the context that I'm using here, the hierarchy are people who I am closest with at the top and then people who I want to start to develop closeness with as we go down the bottom. Hmm. So I'm always trying to like water those people and the, in the, these favorites. And it's amazing that we're talking about all this because, you know, my new book that comes out in April of next year is called Spiritually We, W-E. And it's, hmm. it's the art of relating. It's essentially, it's, you know, it, some of the, um, some, it's a lot of the things we've talked about here today. I don't have the word unreasonable hospitality in there. Maybe the next book I'll quote you on there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Congratulations it's, it's, in advance on the book. Thank you. It's been, I mean, I can't even begin to tell. It's been wild. But essentially there is research, um, the Dunbar research, and it just sh shares that we have the capacity to have, to only really know 150 people in our lives, you know, and, and then it goes from 150 to, to 50 and then, um, 15 and then five. And I might, I might be saying this wrong. I've been writing this book for a year and a half now, but anyways, it, it's look up the Dunbar's, the Dunbar's, Dunbar's research on friendship. And you can see these concentric circles talking about the, the, the innermost five, then the 10, 15, and then you, you kind of keep going. But they say that 15, he says in the research that 15 is like that sweet spot of people who are close and who can hold you when you have no one, who, who can not when you have no one, like who can take care of you when you're, you need someone to take care of your kid or um, who needs to, you know, like friends that can show up for you no matter what's happening. And the 50 is like the, the weddings and funerals and the 150, it's kind of like the peripheral people who are in your, um, the, the person who delivers your mail, the person who delivers your water, the person who, who serves your coffee, kind of like in the, in this, your sort of, uh, community outside of your close, uh, friends. And it's very interesting to think about these numbers because in the world of social media, where you put up a post and, or you have a large following and you, you, like 
the idea that we can actually engage with thousands of people, it's so like it, it leaves us thinking that it's possible, but it's truly neurologically, biologically impossible for the brain to actually even know more than 150 people, you know, without a vague, foggy, murky connection. So I, f- I forgot why I was going in this direction, but <laughs> anyways, that, that piece right there. I want to ask you a last question before we go. Listen, um, and, and take it wherever it goes, okay? Have you ever had a mystical experience? Hmm. Yeah. Um, when my mom passed away the day after I graduated college, um, they lived in Boston at the time. My dad had been preparing for them to come up to see me graduate. And like two months before my graduation, they like literally rented a medical van to get her up to Ithaca where I went to school. And my band and I put on a show in the community center. Cause this is back in the day when you would smoke at bars that she could come see us play outside of a smoke filled bar. It was great. Then a few days before my graduation, she slipped into a coma. They couldn't come and see me graduate. So I graduated threw my cap in the air, ran to the car, drove to Boston, got to the hospital where she had been checked into in the middle of the night. She was in a coma. I sat down next to her on the bed, fell asleep on her lap. Now, in addition to being a quadriplegic, my mom couldn't really talk for the last seven years of her life. I could kind of understand one word every once in a while, no one else could, we had like a special bond. But I woke up in the middle of the night and she was awake and we had an entire lucid, fluent conversation. And it lasted 20 minutes. I told her I graduated. She asked me how it went. She told me how proud she was, this whole thing. And then she she fell back asleep. I ran, got the doctor. I was like, she was awake. And she passed away the next morning. Um never came back to but i've i've often wondered whether there's any world where i imagined that having happened because her being able to talk in so many ways was a physical impossibility and yet at the same time i'm absolutely certain that i didn't that it actually did happen And so I say all that without honestly knowing the correct definition of the word mystical, but that at the very least feels mystical to me. Mm -hmm. That is profound. Wow. So beautiful. I mean, the way we are, the way I speak about um, the mystical here. It's anything that kind of like questions and, you know, like removes the conditioning that we have about the rigidity of reality, that reality is more than just what meets the eye, that things can happen that are miraculous and 
you know, and some people share moments of, of insight. Some people share, you know, really wild experience with like aliens in Sedona. And some people share, <laughs> you know, connection with Jesus or praying to some Hindu deity and having them appear in their, their third eye. I mean, this, the, the stories vary a lot. And, uh, and to sometimes just having a, a big shift in perspective, you know, someone that they couldn't forgive, someone that they deemed bad or, or awful. They woke up one day with just a big change of perspective. They see them as a human with flaws, just like them. So it, it's, you know, there isn't sort of like a, this is deemed mystical. This is not, I think anything that is an experience that we have that kind of opens our perspective to something more than, than what's believable, then I think we can call it mystical. So hmm. that sounds like a great, a beautiful, great is an understatement, a beautiful story to, to tell, you know. My mom left us a tear in her left eye. And hmm. I started to, to look into tears and the messages of tears. And apparently it's the tears that come from the inside of the eye, um, closer to your nose. It's tears of sadness in the middle of the eye of joy and in the corner of the eye of liberation. So I said, you know what? I'll take that. Even if that's yeah. someone's like made up little story about tears, it landed for me because my mom left us a tear in the corner of her left eye. So I'll take that. You know, it yeah, felt, it felt that. really good to know that, that in the myth that we are co-creating as a family she she was liberated in whatever way that means and for us with the buddhist context it's the kind of the highest goal that we want for someone to be liberated yes. so amen to that you know so thank you thank you for taking the time to speak to us hey, this and has been all fun. the amazing this has been like insights a very different conversation than the ones i'm accustomed to having about the book i appreciate you i appreciate the invitation and i'm glad i accepted it me too. Thank you very much. Oh my goodness. And everyone, go get the book. Go get the book, Unreasonable Hospitality, and write a review and, and let Will know how the book is inspiring you if you're a business owner and you're using the book as, a, as an enlightened approach to running a business. Let him know how it's helping you. It's, it's cool to like know how your work is impacting people. So do that. Hmm. I see you, man. Okay, so how do you feel? Let me know how you feel after listening to this, this delicious episode. The, 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 the delicious episode. <laughs> Listen, how do you feel? Let me know in the, in the reviews. Write a review letting us know how the episode impacted you. And I love you very much. Take good care. See you on the next episode. Okay, I'm calling on all the home bar enthusiasts right now. Are you ready to create a new kind of bar experience? One that's sober and filled with magic? Let's create a bar that goes beyond the ordinary, honey. And let's infuse it with the spirit of adventure, wellness, and connection. And listen, with that in mind, 
I need to share with you Anima Mundi's Apothecary and their wonderful brand new Elixir collection. When I saw that, I was like, honey, we got to share this with the community immediately. Even if you're not interested in becoming fully sober, you're sober curious, you just want to, you know, kind of try something different that's still going to make you feel good and sassy and delicious and be like, ooh, I like this, then this is for you. One of their elixirs that I adore, it's the Euphoria. It's composed of organic, wild-crafted, and ethically grown botanicals. It's like a, a potion for joy. And trust me when I tell you this, honey, for those of us who are on a sober journey, or if you are on a sober, curious journey, you're going to drink this, honey, and you're going to be like, ooh, girl, what's in this shit? But hey, honey, it's just a bunch of amazing, organically grown botanicals mixed together to give you that, ooh, I like this feeling. You know what I mean? And they have this Elixir Kit Barista Series. It is gorgeous, iconic, legendary. Buy it for your house or also buy it for a friend. That got to be a sweet friend, honey, because that that's going to require your, a little bit of more of an investment. You could also just get each of the elixirs by themselves, right? And it's an invitation for you to become a spiritual mocktail barista in the comfort of your own home. You know, trust me, you're going to love it. Your body is definitely going to love it. Your mind will thank you and your soul will be like, okay, honey, okay, lit. Listen, and I guarantee you that people that try these elixirs are going to be like, oh, what's going on, honey, over here? I mean, you got to find a recipe that works, but this is the base of it. It's delicious, amazing, and it's going to get you lit. Are you ready to unlock the magic of this elixir collection, honey? Head over to animamundiherbals.com. I'm going to try to spell that for you. A-N-I-M-A-M-U-N-D-I herbals.com. Herbals is spelled H-E-R-B-A. LS.com. Or instead of you listening to spell this, you know, trying to pass the spelling B over here, go to the link in the show notes. And listen, don't forget to use code capital S-A-H number one and number five, SA15 at checkout for an exclusive 15% off your order. Okay. Bless, bless all this beautiful, sober, spiritual bar experiences that you're about to create. Love you.